Good evening. How are you doing today? Who got beat at broom hockey today? Yeah. Listen, there's a reality that most of you didn't even realize existed around these parts, but there ain't no chance you're beating those Hume kids at broom hockey. It ain't happening. It's theirs. That's their ice. This is home turf. Oh, I'm positive. I'm also loyal. Like I raised my kids here, met my wife here. I'm, I'm, I'm. Who, where the, where's the Hume teams at that are in Curry Cup? I'm, I'm in. Number one fan right here. They're, they're so humble. They're not even cheering right now as they get a shout out. I love it. Who's playing them? You guys are more quiet. I'm, Hey, way to start chapel, speaker. That was great. Uh, hey, but you know, you guys played today. You had a good time. Good day. What about box sled? Who's fired up for box sled? Yeah, we got some good ones. Yeah. That one's not a sure bet. Uh, that one's not a sure bet. Hey, I wanted to just recap our first two sessions together and just kind of help us to understand where we're going tonight. And I realized that our talks have had a lot of kind of redundancy in them, and I think that that is on purpose. Because if you haven't noticed yet, the message that the book of Ecclesiastes is, is essentially screaming on repeat at us is that nothing in this world will satisfy. But what's funny about us as humans is we'll go, I know, I know, I know, but I want the girl. Yeah, yeah, but nothing will satisfy the way God will. I know, I know, I know, but I want the job. Okay, I, yep, yep, I get that. But like, but like wisdom tells us Nothing will give you meaning and purpose in this life the way that God will. I know, but money, I get it, I understand. And I think as humans, we have this propensity to really need, need the repetition to learn important lessons. Here, here's what I love the most, though, for y'all as high school students who are here. There's a potential for you to save yourself from a lot of heartache, from a lot of pain, from a lot of mistakes, from a lot of sin, if you heed the words of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. Like when your mind starts to wander towards that thing that you think is going to satisfy and you go, wisdom tells me it's not, you could save yourself a lot of pain. And so, and that's really ultimately what we talked about night one, night um, this morning in talk two, we looked at chapter two and kind of began to unpack how Solomon started naming the exact things that he turned to, to try to satisfy the desires of his heart, ultimately ending with the realization that like sin never satisfies. And anytime we try to make a, a good thing, a God thing, we've, we, we're guilty of making it sin. Like anytime we take something and we try to turn it into a God in our lives, what we've become guilty of is, is either idolatry, meaning I'm going to worship this with my life, or we've become guilty of, of false worship towards something that one is not deserving and two is not going to reciprocate glory back onto us and onto our lives. That was this morning. And ultimately the takeaway for us was this understanding that sin always brings death. Death as defined in scripture could be death, you're no longer alive, but in a spiritual sense, it's separation. You need resurrection. And I asked a question of you as we ended our time this morning to just really consider sin in your life. Is it something you're holding on to? If you're a follower of Jesus, holding on to sin will rob you of intimacy with Jesus, and it's going to make you feel as though God is far away, when in reality, it's you. And I hope that for those of you who are followers of Jesus who've been listening to my words, that, that you take that serious. Like, sin is not something to be played with. It's like my daughter at the zoo. 
your kitty kitty to the lion that will eat you, you know? And, and we tend to do that with things. We tend to make light of things that God tells us, it's not gonna be good for you. I showed that picture of my family last night and, and there's actually kind of an interesting story to my family. My wife and I have three biological children. My youngest daughter was actually adopted through the foster care system in Kern County in Bakersfield. It was a long process. That journey for us actually started when we were living up here at Hume Lake. So whenever I'm up here, I'm just reminded of God's faithfulness in those early days of this little curly-headed girl, barely two years old, never been to the forest before, wandering around, chasing squirrels, kicking pine cones, tripping over everything. Eventually, we, we left Hume, and, and it just wasn't suitable for our family, especially in foster care, because she still had visitation with her mom. She still had to go visit twice a week and kind of enter back into this situation that for a little kid was really hard. It was traumatic. It exposed a lot of stress and trauma for her, having to kind of re-enter into this, this kind of situation um, throughout her days. My wife had this fantastic idea, as she typically does, and she said, hey, what if for visitation we buy a, a backpack? And let me see your backpack. Let's see what's in your backpack. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to open your backpack. So my wife buys her... Uh, Ooh, money. Dang, <laughs> dude, you're doing okay, man. Uh, hey, stay after chapel. I got to talk to you. Uh, it's an investment opportunity. Um, so we pack her this backpack, my wife's idea. And in the backpack, we'd put lunch just in case there wouldn't be food for her. Uh, she was still in diapers. We put diapers and things just for her to like kind of feel clean and, and just to set her up for success, a change of clothes in case an accident, a food spill, something were to happen. And then we'd also put a stuffed animal in there. She called it her stuffy. It was a little pink lamb. And we'd pack this backpack. And visitation for my daughter was really difficult, especially as she began to bond with our family. It was hard for her to realize why she had to leave for these like five to eight hour stints and like her new brothers and sisters, me and my wife, like we're not going with you. It was really difficult for her. So the backpack became something that was really comforting for her. So we'd pull up, my wife would have this talk with her that was, you know, we're gonna be brave today, it's gonna be okay, God is with you, we're here, we're gonna see you after, really trying to reinforce and affirm in this little child's life some consistency, some hopefulness, things of that nature. So she'd grab onto her backpack and she'd say, be brave, and she'd walk through the door and she'd enter into this predicament that would really remind her of kind of the worst parts of her story. Well, get this, guys, two years later, two years and two months after she came home with us, we got to sit before a judge and that judge told us on July 18th, 2018, he looked at us and he said, Maley, it is as if you were born unto Corey and Katie. Your name, your name is now Maley Fenn. You're a part of the family. We adopted her on that day. She's, she's ours at that point. That's our kid now. Yeah. Okay. So, breath of fresh air. If any of you have been a part of the foster care system, like it was, it was just good for us to kind of move on to the next chapter of life and begin integrating our daughter into our family. And so I'm cleaning out the car one day and I find the backpack. And I did what most dads do. I found an unused square of cabinet in my garage and I stuffed the backpack in there, never to be seen again. 
until about a year later. A year later, I'm cleaning out my garage and I have these cabinets open where the cleaning supplies were and my daughter comes out and she goes, oh, there's my backpack. I've been looking for that. And as a dad, I'm like, I should have thrown this stinging thing away. Like it represents a really hard time, you know? And I'm like, oh yeah, there it is. Like it probably has mice poop in it. Like we don't want that backpack. And she goes, no, I want to see the backpack. And I'm like, no, it's ugly. You don't even like Lilo and Stitch anymore. <laughs> like, backpacks, that's gross, you know? And she's like, no, let me see it. So I had to take it down, and she did this to the backpack. She went. Now, as a parent, that's kind of an uncomfortable situation to be in. Thank you for allowing me to use your backpack. <laughs> your wallet may or may not be in there. Uh, <laughs> as a, he's checking, he's all, no, his wallet better be here. Uh, as a parent, that's an uncomfortable situation because you know, I don't want her to have to like kind of be triggered by all of these things that this represents and, and, and that season of life that she was in when this backpack was like a really crucial tool for her to get through something that was difficult. And so for 30 minutes, I sit in the driveway just kind of bartering with my daughter and eventually we landed on, we're going to give up this backpack and dad will take you to the store and you can get any backpack you want. And that was the trade. The reason I share that illustration with you is because when it comes to the things in this life that we turn to and we gravitate towards to give us purpose and meaning, it's quite literally us hanging on to things that we think we need to get through this life when God is saying, let's get rid of that and I'm going to actually replace it with something that will be life-giving to you, not something that is going to take life from you. And just like my three-year-old daughter, at the time that this was happening, a lot of times what I tend to do in my own life is I grip it tighter because I think, maybe I might need this one day. Maybe when things get difficult or hard or if I'm sad, I'm going to need this stuff to help me get through it. What Solomon's taught us so far in the book of Ecclesiastes is that's not a trade you'll ever want to make because hanging on to things that ultimately bring you sinful death and separation from God are never going to be things that are life-giving and, and they're certainly not going to be things that satisfy your soul. And it's from that place that we jump into Ecclesiastes chapter three. So turn there with me. And as you do, I'm going to pray. God, we thank you so much for your love, for your grace, for God, how you, have, how you have traded for us things that in your eyes bring sin and death, and as your word says, are by nature deserving of wrath, and God, you've replaced it with new life. You've replaced it with hope. You've given us a future. You've given us meaning and purpose through your son, Jesus. God, we say thank you for that ahead of time. And Lord, I pray bold and in faith, fully showing the hand that I'm up here to play tonight that if there are people in this room who don't yet know you, that tonight would be the moment. We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8 says this. And pay attention to what he's talking about here because it's kind of interesting. It says, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, 
a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Solomon begins to write about the various seasons of life that we are going to go to. Seasons of life. Times in life where life is going to be incredibly good and joyful and exciting, probably similar to how most of you feel this weekend, and times where life's going to be hard, where it feels like you've been thrown the most unfair curveball in all of human existence. Time where life seems as though it is the highest of highs and it could not get any better than this season right here. And times where you think to yourself, how am I going to get through this? Solomon wants you to understand, and no one ever told me this as I was coming of age. No one ever told me this when I was in the stage of life that you're in. No one ever told me that life can be incredibly cruel and painful and difficult and hellish. No one ever told me the complexities of life. No one ever prepared me for how awful things can get. I shared this story this morning about my mom passing and, and me really having to be there through the whole process. This week celebrated three years of a dear friend of mine who died suddenly of a heart attack in the middle of the night, leaving behind his amazing wife and his two young children. I, I remember when I was 10 years old, the phone rang at three in the morning, woke me up. My mom came into my room crying and said, there's been an accident. My older brother was in a car accident and eventually would pass away from the injuries he sustained in that accident. Before that, when I was like five years old, my parents sat me down and said, hey, we're not gonna live in the same house anymore. They ended up getting a divorce. Like this is the reality that a lot of you face in this life. And what I want you to understand is that as hard and difficult as life can be, you don't have to go through it alone. As awful and heart-wrenching as times can get, when God's involved, you're never going through it solo. Like if we miss the presence of God in our lives, we miss the entire point of this faith that we've been talking about all weekend. If you remember at Christmas time, we sing this funny song that says, um, O come, O come, Emmanuel. You know that song? I can't sing, or I would. Now nah, let's just sing it. I'm just joking. Uh, I ain't saying it. Uh, but that term Emmanuel, it's found in Matthew 126. It's a name for Jesus that literally means God with us. That's who he is. And so as in chapter three, Solomon begins to unpack the seasons of life. It should cue our brain to go, and guess what? I don't ever have to go through that alone. Psalm 139 verse two says, in an, a very similar type of way, if you just flip a few pages back from where you are in Ecclesiastes, towards the end of the book of Psalms, 192, it says this. No, 139, verse 2. It says, in verse 1, it says, you have searched me and know me. Verse 2 says, you know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You know when I sit you know when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. What that tells us about God, friends, is that God is someone who knows. God is someone who sees you, and God is someone who still chooses to love you. He knows even when you choose to stand and when you choose to sit. He can discern your thoughts from afar. There's other scriptures that tell us God knows the number of hairs on your head. 
which means he could like tell me how many I lost this year. Like he has that information. That's data that God can give you. What's the point? The point is God knows. And so as Solomon begins to talk about the different seasons of life, the truth about God that he's explaining to us is that this is a God who knows everything about his creation. Why? Because it's his. He knows everything about you. He knows your past, he knows your present, and he knows your future. How? Because he's the author and maker of all of it. God knows all of these things and he still chooses to love you. I want you to think of it like, a, like an operating software on your phone, or like a signature at the bottom of a painting, or like a fingerprint left on a really clean window. That's the type of God that we have. He's present throughout all of his creation. He'll go on to say in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, in verse 9, he says, What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. And check this out. He has also set eternity on the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Those few words right there explain the entire perspective that Solomon is writing from. Like when he says that, he has set eternity on the hearts of man. Think about that for a second. He has set eternity on the hearts of man. What could that mean? Talk to me. What does that mean? Raise your hand if you got something. Yeah. Every human has a desire to live forever. It's great. Yeah. Because he created us, everybody has this sense of a higher power or a God that exists, and we want to worship it, whatever we do. That's great. Absolutely. There's a reason that every culture has a God. There's a reason that every culture has an answer for an afterlife. There's a reason that every culture has an answer for where the rain comes from and where the harvest comes from. That's not accidental. That's because the operating software that you and I are running on as humans has the impression of the God who spoke everything we know and see to be human existence out of his mouth. Like like the software bears the imprint of its creator. And you, my friend, are the byproduct of that. What Solomon is doing is he's answering one of the most fundamental basic questions that every single human will ever ask, flirt with, wrestle with, try to figure out. And it's the question of, who am I, what am I here for, and where do I go when I die? I realize, as I said that out loud, that was three questions. But for the sake of tonight's message, it's one question. Why? Well, because I have the microphone. So that was one question. Fair? Good. Specifically, that question of where do I go when I die? What happens? Have you ever thought about that before? It's such a deep question to think about. Because if you're asking the question of what happens to me when I die, that means you're wrestling with this can't be all that it's, that, that it's supposed to be. Like There has to be more to life than just this. 
right? Like if you're thinking about what happens to you when you die, then you've accepted that death is a part of the human equation, which means we all have a grasp on the final nature that death brings into our situation. It's done. As I shared with you, I watched them wheel my mother's body out of the room, and there was no part of me that thought she would go, hey, where am I going? I knew exactly in that moment what was happening. Solomon tells us why we have that question. And the reason he states that we have this question is because God has put that question on the heart of mankind. It's pre-built into us. The reason every human culture, the reason every human who's ever existed or lived wrestles with that question is because there is a God That question is evidence that there is a God. You would never have walked into this chapel and stared at this set and thought to yourself, that's amazing how that just kind of randomly exists there, huh? Isn't that just wonderful? You'd never walk around and see all the buildings and just incredible infrastructure that's been invested into this amazing camp for the last 80 years and go, so random, someone just stumbled across this one day and it just all exists here like this. Well, why do we do that with our lives? Why do we assume that something came from nothing and therefore life has no meaning? I think, it's, I think it's incredibly irresponsible for us as humans to at least not wrestle with these types of questions. Solomon is forcing us to do that, is my point. And as we talked about this morning, you have to understand that there is an answer to that question. But in order for us to fully grasp the answer to that question, you have to understand what's holding you back from the answer. And, and that, the, the thing that's holding you back is quite literally your sin. It's like my daughter not wanting to let go of the backpack when she has a new opportunity here. We tend to hang on to things that we think can save us when in reality, they have no saving power. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So what can be done about this? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 where we left off this morning. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us this. If you remember, I'll read the first three verses. It said, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. What this author's telling us is, we've all been sinful. We've all been hopeless. We've all tried to answer that question of, where do I go when I die and what am I here for through pursuing things that have no saving power? He'll then go on to write this. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. For it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Just when the story couldn't get any worse, just when the reality couldn't get any more stark and dark and hopeless and awful, we have now learned about a God who did something about that. That's why he starts by saying, but, so as a result of this being true about you, but 
God has made us alive together in Christ. The, think about the turtle story I shared with you. That turtle didn't need water. That turtle didn't need food, like I, like I said. It would have done no good for me to respray paint his shell green. Why? Because he was... Dead things don't need care and comfort. Dead things need resurrection. And what this passage is telling us is that there is a God who has offered resurrection life to those of you who would put your faith in and believe in him. Like what this passage is describing for us is that it's God, because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy. By the way, he's got a wealth of mercy to show to people. You might be sitting there going, we talked about sin this morning, and you reminded me of how awful I've been. Guess what? God is rich in mercy. Couldn't be enough mercy. You don't know my story. I promise you, I don't need to know your story because I know the God who is rich in mercy. He's got plenty of it for you. He's got enough to go around. He then tells us that he's made us alive together with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. He's brought life to us when, when we were lifeless. How? Through Jesus. He says, for it is by grace that you have been saved. But then it goes on. And as I read this next section to you one more time, I want you to think about all of the stuff that Solomon had talked about, the money, the wealth, the relationships, the land, the property, all that stuff. Think about those things that Solomon had and then hear this description of God. Okay, you tracking with me? It says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expect, expect, <laughs> expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What this passage is telling us is that one, God raises us up. Like he literally resurrects us. And that resurrection is only an awesome word if you realize you're dead. Like someone who's alive does not need to be resurrected. You know who and what needs to be resurrected? Things that are dead. So Paul begins to describe to his readers this understanding that God has the ability to make dead things experience life again. Never heard of that before until I met Jesus. God unites us. He restores us. The second thing he said here is that he seats us with him. There's our word again, with. It's not just that God has saved you. It's that God is now with you in this life. And maybe you've been around church for a while and, and, and you know what's coming and you know where's that that's moment where we're talking about heaven and, and, and the whole point of Christianity is to go to the good place when I die, not the bad place. Friend, that is not an accurate picture of the faith that we read in Scripture. At the core of the, the biblical message, at the heart of the gospel, is not a God who takes you to the good place when you die. It's a God who brings the good place here to you now. When Jesus preaches the gospel in the beginning of the chap uh, beginning chapters of the book of Mark, he preaches a gospel that is quite literally repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is here. And I think so many of us miss out on this resurrected life that God has offered us because we assume that resurrection life doesn't start until my heart stops. No, it's here in this moment today. That's where the fulfillment comes from. That's where the purpose comes from. That's where the meaning comes from. And so many of us who profess faith in Jesus live lives as though heaven has not radically transformed all of the dead parts of me. And so we live 
with a description chasing after all the things that we've read about in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we wonder why faith feels tricky. You've got to live as though heaven is here now because it is. God seats us with him is what it says. The last thing, it says that he shows us grace through his kindness. God shows us grace through his kindness. There's two words that I find so interesting here in Ephesians, and they're two words that oftentimes are used interchangeably, except they mean totally different things. It's the words grace and mercy. On one hand, you have grace, and grace could be defined as something that you get for free, you did nothing to earn it. On the other hand, we have this word mercy, and mercy would be described as me letting you off the hook and and thus saving you from the consequences of your actions. To put it into an illustration, it would be like this. Let's say you stole a Tesla, Cybertruck, right? Uh, 8,000-pound vehicle that can go 0 to 60 in less than three seconds. If you've ever taken physics, you realize that truck could do some damage if it hit something going that fast. And you've never driven before, let alone driven something so fast. And so you're in the, you're in the cyber truck watching the one windshield wiper squish back and forth. And next thing you know, you're pushing the pedal and you're going 80 miles an hour when you see headlights in the rearview mirror. As you look forward to pull off and pull over, you see, oh, shoot, I'm in a school zone and there are children present. 25 miles an hour is the speed limit. So the cop pulls you over, doesn't even compliment how cool your car is. Did you not even realize I'm in a cyber truck, dude? The cop goes, you're going straight to jail because you don't even have your driver's license and you could have killed someone in this heavy truck driving that fast. And you're like, what, jail? I thought this was just a story at camp. It is, no one's really going to jail, okay? (laughs) Maybe though, I don't know what else was in your backpack. Uh, (laughs) Possible. Security? Um, So you show up to court. There's a judge, there's a jury, there's a defense team, and the judge reads you what you've done. And he goes, is this true? What's your name? What is it? Cade. Cade? I like that name. Cade, is it true that you stole your dad's Cybertruck? Yeah. Is it true that you don't have a driver's license? Is it true you're going 80 miles an hour in a school zone? with kids present on a rainy day, and you try to make them all eat nasty raisin canes. Is this true? Yeah. And the judge goes like this, he goes, guilty. The punishment, remember, the wages of sin is what? The punishment that you deserve. You're going to prison, buddy, and I'm gonna hit you with a big old fat fine, Cade. Like, I don't know, maybe like a million dollars. Yeah, exactly. How am I going to pay a million dollars? How am I going to go to jail? I'm only 15, Cade's thinking. They're going, to, they're going to chew me up in there. This is going to be awful. The judge, just as he reads the verdict to Cade, goes, hey, but let me tell you what. You're off the hook. That would be mercy. Hey, you know what? Don't worry about it. I'm going to show you. Uh, I'm, I'm going to let you off the hook here. I'm going to be merciful. Right? Mercy. Grace would be this. He did all these things, million dollar fine, jail time, right? Grace would be, hey, I'm, I'm actually going to do the time and pay the fine for you on your behalf. But judge, you're innocent. I know. Why would you do this? That's what we're reading because he's rich in mercy, because he has a ton of love to give, because he set eternity into the hearts of men. Are you tracking with me? 
I, I shared that with you to illustrate the difference between grace and mercy, ultimately to say this, God gives you both. He gives you both. How does he deliver this to us? Well, he delivers it through the perfect, sinless life of his son Jesus. God's word tells us that 2,000 years ago, God in human skin walked the earth living a perfect, uh, a perfect human existence, sinless, through and through. And the scriptures would say that when the time was right, Jesus offered up his spirit on a cross, ultimately experiencing death, the death that we deserved on our behalf, three days later, rises again. That's what Christians celebrate at Easter. It wasn't just that a good God took our place. It wasn't just that a good God took our punishment. No, it's that this good God resurrected, which is the perfect news for people who understand that their sin has brought them death. You might be thinking, well, how do I get this gift, the grace, the mercy, all of it? He goes on to tell us in Ephesians 2. He says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through, what's the word? And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. We're saved by grace. That's the free gift of life that God wants to offer people who are spiritually dead through faith. Well, what is faith? Well, faith is believing in this message. Faith isn't believing in this message like you believe one plus one equals two. Faith isn't believing in this message like you'd believe the Lakers are the greatest basketball franchise in the history of the NBA. Faith isn't believing in this message in the way that, that you believe you're going to get good grades or believe that you're going to get the job. No, faith demands change. John 3.16, arguably the most famous Bible verse in all the scriptures, tells us this. It says, for God what? So love the world that he gave his one and only son. Again, that's the one who takes our place in this situation. And then he said that whoever believes in him shall not perish, not experience that death anymore, but have what? Eternal life. And when does it start? At the moment you believe. What this passage is telling us is that whoever believes, whoever puts their faith in this God who has the ability to resurrect spiritually dead people, they get to experience eternal life in Christ Jesus because he's a good God who's full of grace and mercy. In fact, he's so rich with it, he's offered this to all of us. And to tie it back to the book of Ecclesiastes. This is the reason nothing can compare. All of these things that we put our hope and faith in, thinking that will fix us, thinking that it will save us, thinking that it will take the pain away, help us to cope, erase the trauma. You can't ask things that have no saving power to be God's. You can't ask things that have no resurrection power to bring you back from the dead. Friend, you need Jesus. And the Bible tells us that in order to receive this gift of salvation from God, in order for heaven to come down and invade your life here in this very moment tonight, all that is necessary is you putting your faith in it. Other places would say it like this. All that's necessary is you repenting. Repentance has been described, if you've been around church, as like a 180-degree turn. I was going this way, I was living for the world and all of its things, and I met Jesus and I turned. And while that's an accurate definition, a more accurate definition of repentance would be you've changed your mind. You, you no longer actually believe that those things can save you because you've now had an encounter with the living God. 
You've changed your mind because God has opened up the dead caverns of your heart to receive the gift of love and grace and mercy that his son Jesus died and was resurrected to secure for each of us. And so all of this leads us with really one question and thought. God has set eternity on the hearts of man. How do I obtain that eternity? Friend, that eternity can only be obtained through faith in Jesus. How do we know this? Because Jesus himself said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and nobody gets to the Father except through me. Jesus isn't just a good option in a sea of great options. Jesus is the only option, and we know this to be true because the words out of his very own mouth are, you have no other option apart from me. But the reason the gospel is known as good news is because it's a free gift for anyone who would put their faith in it. And so the question I have for you as we wrap up this talk tonight is this. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that that angst you have, that question you have of eternity, what am I here for? Where do I go when I die? Do you believe that the answer to that question can only be found in Christ? And are you willing to turn from the way you were living to begin now living with Jesus? How I'd love to end our time together is just with a prayer. And I want to pray for two reasons. One, I want you to ask yourself those honest questions that I just asked. And two, I'd love to pray over you. And so as we close our time together, let's do so with our eyes closed and our heads bowed. God, as we conclude our time together tonight talking about how you have laid eternity on our hearts, of God, how you've offered us grace and mercy through your son Jesus, that God, resurrection power is available for anyone who would call upon the name of Jesus. That Lord, you, you've helped us to change our minds around what really matters and what we should be living, living for. God, you've allowed us to put our faith in you and you alone. So friends, as we've kind of wrestled with these truths tonight, I, I want to ask a question of you. Do you believe in this? If yes, in the stillness of your own heart and the quietness of your own prayer, thank God for it right now. It's a gift. And as we've talked about time and time again this weekend, you've got a gift that nothing can compare to. In your own way, just say thank you, God, for that. And you may be sitting there and you may be going, I don't have this gift. I've never put my faith in Jesus before. Friend, it's as simple as you in this moment right now saying, God, I am sinful and I am dead apart from you. I put my faith in you and I trust that you alone can give me purpose and meaning. I believe in you, Jesus. In fact, there's this verse in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 9, that says, anyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. I want to give you a chance if you've never made that, that, that life-altering decision that will give you meaning and purpose here in this very moment. If you've never done that before, I want to give you a chance to pray that right now, to cry out to God in your own words to repent, to say, God, I'm so sorry of my sin. Would you save me here in this moment? And what I know to be true about this God is he always answers that prayer. We'll take it one step further. If tonight, for the first time, 
meaning you've never done this before. I'm not talking to the person who just feels guilty because we've talked about the goodness of God. You can confess that and, and get made right. I'm talking to the person who in this moment realizes they have never put their, Jesus, their faith in Jesus before for the forgiveness of their sins. You've never done this at a camp. You've never done this at church. There's not a moment in your life that you can think back on where you decided to follow Jesus. If that's you, I'm going to count to three, and I'd love for you to just stand where you are so I can look at you in the eyes and pray for you. So on the count of three, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, and tonight you either have done that or would like to do that, on the count of three, I want you to stand right where you're sitting. One, two, three. I see you. Stay standing. I see you. Never done this before. I see you. Stay standing for me. I see you. Maybe you're sitting there and you're wrestling. You're like, man, I don't like attention. You don't have to stand to get saved. I just want to invite you into the family of God. Anyone else? You're saying tonight's the night. Stay standing for me, buddy. So look at me. Those of you, look at me. Your life looks different now. On this day, on February 24th, 2024, you've made a decision that's going to be the single, most the single most important decision you've ever made. Everything in your life now orients around following after and learning and understanding the ways of Jesus as we read in our Bibles. That church that you came up here with is the single most important thing that you can press into moving forward. That youth pastor, that just incredible man or woman that God has placed in your life to be a spiritual shepherd over your soul, that's who you look to to figure out how to do what comes next in this journey of faith in Jesus. To the rest of you, I want you to look up if you haven't yet. And I want you to welcome these new brothers and sisters into the church family with me in this moment. And so if you... If you just stay standing, and if you're comfortable, stay standing. And if you're around these guys, let's pray for them and, and just pray a blessing over them. And that'll, help, that'll be how we conclude our time together tonight. So God, I thank you so much for, for these young men and women who have decided tonight to follow after you. God, your word tells us that heaven is ecstatic in this moment because we've got to see your resurrection power do, God, what it's been doing for all of time, and that's redeeming and resurrecting things that are dead and far from you. God, only you are the answer for why eternity has been set in our hearts. God, only you are the person that we can turn to to find meaning and purpose in this life, as hard and cold and dark and difficult as it can be. Father God, we thank you that you are ever present with us. God, we're never alone when you're involved. And so, Jesus, I pray for these young men and women that you'd press them into the church, God, that you'd surround them with people who can show them how to follow after your son, Jesus, that they would walk with them, that they would teach them to read scriptures, that they would help answer hard questions, that they would care for them in ways that they've maybe never experienced before. God, we thank you so much for our own salvation and for the faith that we have in you, Jesus. And we thank you how, how God, apart from that, we have nothing. We love you so much, God. And as we sing this last song to you, would we do so with hearts filled with gratitude because of how good and amazing and loving you are. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.